Let me have you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. We'll continue what we were looking at this morning. And while you're doing that, I'll uh, share a little story with you that uh, Josie was saying this afternoon that she was trying to make a picture for me to put on my wall down in the office. And so she tries to write it out. Of course, she can't write any words besides your name. And uh, she says, you know what it says, Dad? It says, you're the best. You're the best in the world, but you're not really the best because God is. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, that's, that's actually true, but I'm second, right? And uh, so kids are uh, certainly very profound sometimes in the things that they say. Matthew chapter 2, we're looking at um, the birth of Jesus Christ. And this morning we saw Joseph's response to the, the birth of our Lord. And this evening we're going to see the wise men's response to the birth of our Lord. Let's begin reading with Matthew chapter 2 with verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I may too come and worship him. And after hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left their own country by another way. Why do you suppose Matthew records these details? Why doesn't he just say that the Magi came from the east and, and worshipped him? Included in this story is, is a little bit of drama. You have King Herod there who's, who's uh, interested very much in coming to find out where this Messiah was. We find out later that he's doing that in order to, to kill him so that he can maintain his throne. You have uh, some sinful envy going on. You have some supernatural leading with the star. Why is it that Matthew records these things? Well, I think what Matthew is doing is not in order to keep our attention or in order to make his story more exciting, but he's doing it rather to, to be in keeping with the theme of his book. I mentioned it quickly this morning, but basically the theme of his book is that Jesus came as the promised Messiah, but he was rejected by his own people, people who should have known. And as a result, Jesus offered his kingdom to the Gentiles, you and me, and he offers it to all people who will come to him in repentance and faith. 
And so this story really in, in chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 is basically a, a, an anticipation of the hostility that Jesus would receive throughout his lifetime. It begins right at his birth. He, he receives opposition right away. That he would be rejected by his own people. By people who should have known. And so God would providentially, through, um, through his miracles, and, or providentially through his natural means, and then supernaturally through his miracles, he would protect his son, and he would allow him to do what he came to do. And ultimately, it would be so that we, as Gentiles, could receive the offer of the kingdom, and so that we could also worship the king. And so what I want you to see this evening, what I think Matthew is trying to teach us here, is that God leads his people to find the king so that we can worship the king. That is why God leads his people to find the king. So that, that's what we're going to see in the story of the wise men. We begin with the search in verses 1 through 10. We have this search going on, and the, the wise men are at the center of the story. And there's two things that they use to, to find their way to the baby Jesus, or to the young child Jesus. The first thing that they use is the light of the star. But before we get into that, let's um, look at the Magi themselves. Who are these people, and uh, where are they from, how many are there, and so on. Well, these... these uh, are referred to as Magi here in verse 1. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. These are people who were very much in tune with the stars, the heavenly beings. And they, were, they would constantly be following these stars. Now some of these Magi, not particularly these ones that are coming to worship Jesus, but some Magi in that day, wise men, would, would uh, study the stars for astrological reasons in order to find out how to do certain types of magic or predict the future, things like this, things that were authored by Satan. But these, we could say, are generally looking for the truth. And they're using the stars to, to help navigate them, themselves to the, uh, the, the, new ba- the new baby, the new child, Jesus Christ. And so tradition tells us that they may have been kings, but based on, um, and that's based on Psalm and Isaiah that talks about kings bowing down to worship the Messiah and the fact that they actually offered gifts to Jesus. That is a possibility, but I would suggest that they're probably simply wise men or or, uh, leaders of the day who were very solid in their understanding of the heavenly beings. So how many were there? In front of you here, we have two. We used to have three, but one of them broke. So we have two wise men. How many wise men are there? We t- typically think that there are three wise men. That's what we're told all grown up. All the nativity scenes have three wise men. We would think that would be weird if there were more. But the scriptures don't actually say how many there were. There could have been 100. We, we don't know. There could have been 10 or, or 20. We don't, we don't know the exact number. But what we do know is that they brought three gifts, and that's typically why we've thought of it in that, those terms, that there are three wise men. Now, typically, when these gentlemen would travel, they'd have a large uh, caravan of people, attendants, people who would take care of them as they, they were going. And so what you'd find is that this was a large group of people that were searching for this promised Messiah, this King of the Jews. We find out in verse 1 that they are from the east. That they are from the east. Now, we don't know exactly where they're from, but they're probably from somewhere around Persia or southern Arabia. And they would have had to travel 
they would have had to travel several hundred miles to get to the birthplace or the uh, the childhood place, the place where Jesus grew up. Um, and so it would take quite a long time. And what we find is that they arrived in Jerusalem. So what happens is they see the star and then they start heading for Jerusalem. Now, this is the natural place to go. This makes a lot of sense because this is the Jewish capital. So if you're if you're going to have the king of the Jews being born, then these people of all people would know where he would be born. He's the one that was promised to them. So they go to the capital of Jerusalem, and we find out that they begin asking questions. You see at the end of verse 1, it says, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, or we could say, went around saying. I think that's a better translation. They went around saying. So they're going around to different people. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? Where is he? They're asking all these people. And uh, so it doesn't appear that they go directly to the leaders of the city. They don't go to King Herod himself because King Herod finds out about it. Look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with them. So it, it, it seems to me that they were going around just talking to anybody that they came in contact with. And as a result, the word got out to Herod. And uh, so what, what was it that these wise men knew about Jesus? Well, we know that they knew at least two things about him. Verse 2 tells us that they know that he was going to be, um, he was going to be, Pointed by the star in the east. Verse 2 says, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we see his star in the east and have come to worship him. We know he's close. Okay, so that's the one thing that they knew, that this star was leading them to Jesus. And then the second thing that we, we also note that they know about Jesus is verse 2, that he was the king of the Jews. And um, this is quite interesting because... They, they did not just say the king of the world. They said the king of the Jews. And they recognized him, even though they themselves were probably Gentiles. They recognized him as the king of the Jews. And it shows us that all of us, that all mankind should recognize Christ as the king. Okay, Maybe he's not the king of your race. Maybe he's not, he wasn't born into your race. But he, he was born into the human race. He wasn't born into your, your uh, ethnic group that you grew up in. But he was born into the human race. And as a result, he should be worshipped by all people. And I think the, the wise men give us a good way of pointing, pointing us to the king. So let's talk about the star because the star is what led them. We see that in verse 1 that the magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem and uh, said, For where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star. And then we find out that the star leads them even farther from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, which was a couple miles away. Look at verse 9. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, there are lots of ideas as to what this star was. Some people will say that it's the planet Jupiter. It's the largest planet. You can see it in the sky. It's moving. The wise men saw it there, and they followed it to Jerusalem. Other people would suggest that it's a supernova or a comet of some kind, some heavenly, uh, 
heavenly uh, uh, light source that basically guided them. Well, the scriptures don't say it explicitly, but I, I would I would think that it's something different than those things. I would think that it, it is something more supernatural than just a natural occurrence of a comet or just a planet moving because it takes them from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, and then what does it say? It stops. It stops over the place where the child was. And so I would suggest to you that it's probably some kind of... Um, uh, supernatural light source that God gave to them, similar to what he did to Israel. Remember how Israel was, well, was led in the wilderness? It was a pillar of cloud by day, and what was it by night? A pillar of fire. And it, it was God moving before them with this special um, work of his, a supernatural work that allowed them to be led. And so... I think that that may be what it, what it is. Now the point here is not to show us how it led them. The point of, of talking about the star is that it led them. It was the fact that God was behind it because this could not happen if God were not behind it. And so God is leading his people, the wise men, he's leading his people to the king. And he used the star. So the first way that, that they are led to Jesus Christ is through the star. The second way that we see in verses 5 and 6 is through the light of the scripture. We see that the wise men are led through the light of the scripture. Verse 5 says, They said to him in Bethlehem, uh, this is the chief priests and the Pharisees talking to Herod, they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, this is where he's going to be, for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. And out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, who is this that quotes the scriptures? Well, we see up in verse 4 that gathering, to get, <coughs> excuse me, gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes. The chief priests were primarily Sadducees, and they gave oversight to the temple activities, and so they would know a lot about the scripture they had to in, order to in order to do their job. The scribes were primarily made up of Pharisees, and they were the official interpreters of the Old Testament. So Herod was smart. When he found out about the situation, he went to these leaders of the law, people who knew the scriptures. He called them to himself and said, Listen, these wise men are trying to find the place where Jesus is, what do the scriptures say? They didn't know his name was Jesus, but what do the scriptures say? Where do they say that the Messiah is going to be born? And immediately they recognized where the Messiah was going to be born based on the text of the Old Testament. They said he will be born in Bethlehem in Judea. Now this is to be, um, this is to be basically distinguished from the, a Bethlehem in the north. There's also a Bethlehem up in the Galilee area. But Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem in Ephrathah. Um, we'll see that when we look at Micah chapter 5, verse 2 on Wednesday. But this is basically a distinguishing of that Bethlehem from the north, similar to what we do with our uh, possibly counties or states. We would, I mean, almost every state has the city Lincoln. In fact, we live in the city of Lincoln Park. My, uh, there is a city up in the... Upper Peninsula that is called Lincoln, Michigan. So almost every state has Lincoln, but if we just say, I'm going to Lincoln, that doesn't mean anything. 
We have to give it a distinguishing um, location, region. And so this is what they're doing. They're saying Bethlehem and Judea. This is where Jesus would be born. This is a specific place, and he will be born there. Now, what do they know about the Messiah? Well, they, they know, first of all, about the place, certainly. This is a small village called Bethlehem. It's five to six miles south of Jerusalem, not too far where, from where the, the wise men were at this time. And they also recognized that, that he, this was going to be where the Messiah would be born. Now, this is the second proof that Matthew gives to Jesus being the promised Messiah. The first proof was this morning when he quoted from the Old Testament that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. That's the first proof, that Jesus is the Messiah. The second one is right here, that he would be born in the city of Bethlehem of Judea. He goes on to talk about some further proofs from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah. In verse 15 of chapter 2, he says, Out of Egypt I, will call, I called my son, meaning, remember Jesus and his family had to flee from Herod? They go to Egypt. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy in, in, um, in Isaiah. And then also that he comes back and he's born of, in Nazareth, or he, he lives and grows up in Nazareth that Jesus would be from Nazareth. And then also um, you have another proof when John the Baptist came and said that this is the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. That is John the Baptist being Jesus' um, forerunner. So we see that the wise men are led by the light of the star, and they also need some help from these um, chief priests and scribes because... They didn't know exactly where. They probably didn't know the scriptures as well as these guys did. That's why they had to go around and ask. Otherwise, they could have gone directly to Bethlehem, you see. So they, they asked around. They found out they're led by the light of the star, and they're led by the light of the scripture. Now, what I want you to also see that's mixed in with this story is the darkness of a king, the darkness of King Herod. Verses 3 and 4 and 7 and 8. This is a man who's referred to here as King Herod. King Herod. And he is, uh, he is Herod the Great. He ruled from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. This guy was a ruthless and cunning man. In fact, he loved being a leader, a king, so much that he destroyed everybody else around him who could possibly take his throne. We find out that later in his life he killed his wife, his three sons, his brother-in-law, his uncle, and many others because he wanted to maintain his kingship and he was just a ruthless man. He would do whatever it took to maintain his power. If anybody made him mad, get rid of him. Okay, And so you see why he got rid of this potential king, right? He finds out that the king of the Jews is going to be born and we find out later in this chapter that he issues a decree that every child in the area of Jerusalem, not just the city of Jerusalem, the surrounding area that was two years old and under would have to be killed, just slaughter him. Because he was afraid of the threat to his throne. He could not allow someone to take his throne, even if it was several years away. He thought he would uh, live for a long time. Now, Herod the Great was known for his magnificent buildings. He loved uh, putting together these great works of architecture, and um, the most famous project was the rebuilding of the temple at Jerusalem. The project took several decades and wasn't completed until after his death. But he began it in 19 B.C. and finished it in 8064. 
which was about 68 years after he had died. So King Herod was a ruthless man, and, and Matthew puts him in the story to show that there is going to be opposition to Jesus Christ. It starts out from the time that he was born. Now, look at verse 3 with me, because I want, to, I want you to see that, that Jerusalem, King Herod and Jerusalem were all disturbed, and we need to find out why. When Herod the king heard this, that is, that the king of the Jews was born in Bethlehem, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Now, obviously, we already mentioned why Herod would be troubled about this, because Jesus was a threat to his throne. But why would the people of Jerusalem be disturbed by this? Well, I think they were disturbed because they recognized that Herod was such a wicked king and that he would do anything to, to make sure that his kingdom was taken care of, that it was set. And so they perhaps recognized that his ruthlessness and realized that this could affect me in some way. This could affect my family. Now, I don't know that they would know that, that Herod would potentially kill one of their sons, but, uh, but certainly they recognized that he was an evil man. So they were disturbed as well, not because they had some nice feeling about the, the Messiah, the promised Messiah. It wasn't because Herod cared deeply about finding the Messiah like he says he is. So they were disturbed. And so I think the reason that we have Herod in this story is perhaps it could be to show the sovereignty of God, that God was leading throughout Jesus' life. It began at the very beginning and that God was protecting him. Remember, later on in this chapter, Jesus and Joseph and Mary are told to move over to Egypt until Herod dies. They do that, and then what happens? The angel comes back to them and says, all right, come on back. When they come back to, to Bethlehem, who's in charge? It's Archelaus, Herod's close relative, and, and they realize that he's also a troublemaker, so they move on to Nazareth somewhere where they cannot be harmed by, by these people because God is protecting Jesus. Well, that could be the, the reason that Herod is included in the story, but I think it's probably mainly to help the wise men. You realize the wise men didn't know exactly where Jesus would be. They didn't know where the king of the Jews, they, they knew Jerusalem, the, the star had led them that far. They didn't know where, where to go from there. It stopped and it, it they needed to know further direction, and so they go to the scriptures to find out. From the teachers of the law, and they find out, oh, Bethlehem. Well, that'll be easy. It's a small town. That makes sense. David was, was, was uh, from Bethlehem, and he was a king. Jesus Christ is the king of the Jews. So Herod sends them on their way, and he says, listen, once you find the Messiah, you come back and tell me, because I want to go and worship him too. Now, we all recognize that that's a big hoax, and he simply just wanted to kill him. But what's interesting to me is that Herod didn't send people ahead with these guys. Isn't that interesting? Why did he not send people with them to make sure that they came back with the news or to make sure that this was the one? I mean, certainly these chief priests and scribes would want to see the king of the Jews, wouldn't they? But no, Herod sends them on their way, he thinks that he has them. He thinks that he, he, he has convinced them that he really does want to worship. And the amazing thing is, is I think that, that they indeed did believe him. 
And the reason that I say that is because verse 12. Look at verse 12. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. So what is the implication? What is implied in that statement? Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod. The implication is that they were planning to return to Herod. They didn't realize how evil of a man he was or that he didn't really want to go and worship him. And so it required an angel to stop them from going back. So Herod was right. I mean, Herod really did have them. He was right not to send people along with them because he really had them in his grasp. He, he caught their emotions. And they didn't recognize that he was going to destroy Jesus if he had the chance. So now we come to verse 11, and that's where I want to focus because this is, um, this is primarily what this passage is talking about, the main point of this passage, and that is that when we are led to the king, we should worship the king. This is exactly what the Magi do, the wise men. Verse 11. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, how old was Jesus when the Magi arrived? And we often see pictures of Jesus being a baby, okay, and being there at the, the Magi are there at the same time as a shepherd. But I don't think he was a baby at this time, and I think that's the case. I think he was a toddler or an older child uh, for a couple reasons. We don't know exactly how old, and some people would suggest, well, yeah, he was a baby. Because look at verse 11. It says that when they came to the house, they saw the child. So he was a child. He had to be a baby, right? But the problem is, look back to chapter 1, verse 18. It's not a very good argument because... Jesus is called a child here when he's in the womb. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with, let's say, fetus or baby. It says child. So the argument that, there, that people say that, yeah, he was a baby when the, the Magi came to worship him is not a legitimate one. It's not, not accurate. And uh, the other reason that I think that he was a, a toddler probably between the ages of one and two, is that uh, the wise men went to the place where he was. They, it says that, that um, verse 11, after coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They came to the place where the child was. Let's see, uh, verse 9. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was born. No, where the child was living is the idea. It's the place where he was living. Now, let me that's not a very convincing proof, so let me show you in verse 11 what the best proof is. After coming into the stable, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. No, into the house. Okay, so... This is several months, perhaps, after, could be a couple days after he was born, but I would suggest that it's several months. And the reason that I suggest, and I think this is the best argument, that he is probably younger than two, is that, that uh, King Herod knew his age. Look at verse 13. 
Now when they, the wise men, had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Then look down to verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under. And then notice why. According to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Look back up to um, verse 7 of chapter 2 because I want to show you that he finds out the exact time when they saw the star. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. See, he was covering all his bases. He wanted to know when they saw this. It could have been a couple years earlier. Maybe they were just taking their sweet old time. But no, he knew the exact time. And so it had to be within two years. And Herod recognized that, that I need to kill infants. Okay, I need to kill these young children so that, that they cannot take over my throne. And so he goes back in his mind, figures out exactly where the magi, when the Magi first saw the star. He goes all the way until the time after he had found out he had been tricked. And he says, all right, two and under. Now, I would expect that if he knew that the child was one and under, that he would say one and under. Now, um, the point is, is that, that Jesus was probably a young child. And they probably, the Magi, were coming, remember, from southern arabia or persia somewhere over there and it would have taken probably several months to get there you can't just get on a train or a boat or or a um, or an airplane or something like that they got to walk and so even if they traveled for about 15 miles a day to travel 800 miles would have taken at least two months and so i would suggest that he's between for sure between the, month, the ages of two months and two years now if you're older than two years then why go to egypt he could just stick around there what's the big deal so he had to be younger than two years and he was probably older than two months and so basically i would suggest that he's probably between the ages of 12 and 18 months and uh so when they come to him what do they do it says, after coming into their house, verse 11, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. They worshipped him because of who he is. Now, one thing I want you to notice is all the names that are ascribed, that are attributed to Jesus Christ in this passage. All right, we talked this morning about him being Emmanuel and him being Jesus. Look at verse 1. You'll see that his name was Jesus. Now, after Jesus was born, verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, notice what they say there. They don't say, where is he who will be the king of the Jews? They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? See, Jesus didn't have to wait until uh, something happened, until someone put a crown on his head. He was born the king. He was the king from the time he was born until the time he died. And then verse 4, here's another name that's attributed to him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So we have Jesus, the king of the Jews, the Messiah, verse 6, gives us another two names. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, by no, are by no means 
least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd. So he's a ruler and a shepherd. And as I said this morning, we cannot pin Jesus Christ with one name because he is so great and we can't describe him with one name. There are so many facets to him that we have to give him. The scriptures give him several names. He's also referred to as a child in verses 8, 9, and 11. And uh, I think it's interesting to note that because Matthew is trying to show that, that Jesus really is God. No one uh, receives that many names. No one needs that many names. So what do the Magi do in his presence? The, the text says that they fall to the ground and they worship him. The idea is that they throw themselves down to the ground as a sign of devotion before high-ranking persons. They recognize that he is a king. It's similar to Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 6 when it says, um, when Isaiah sees the throne of God and he sees the angels singing, Holy, 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 what does he do? He says, Woe is me, for I am a man undone. I have unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. He recognizes his worthlessness before the king, God in this case. The God, the, the triune God in this case, for, I, for Isaiah, for, for the wise men, it's Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. They recognize their worthlessness before who? A grown man who's already proven himself? Before a child. They recognize that he's the king. And so I would suggest to you that that should be our response to the birth of Jesus Christ as well. That we should fall to the ground and recognize that he is great and we are weak. That he has worth and that we should give him his worth. We should, we should value his worth. We should speak of his worth. And yet we are worthless before him. What a great king that we serve. Verse 12, we have the, the end of this passage, and we find that the, the magi, the wise men, escape the hands of Herod, and they also allow Jesus Christ to escape. Verse 12 says, And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the magi left for their own country by another way. And what I want you to see here is that God protected Jesus from premature death. This is what God did throughout Jesus' entire life. You, you remember several times that the Pharisees would get so indignant, so frustrated with Jesus and the things that he was saying that they would do what? They'd pick up stones. Remember when they were talking about Abraham? Oh, you think you know Abraham, Jesus? You don't know him. How could you know him? And he says, listen, before Abraham was born, I am. Okay, He didn't say before Abraham was born, I will. I was born, he says, I am, meaning I have existed eternally. That is the name that God gives to himself in the Old Testament, I am. The idea is that I am what I am, that, that I will be what I will be. That no name can really ascribe to me the glory that is due to me. And so Jesus said this, and when he said, before Abraham was born, I am, the Pharisees picked up stones to stone him. What, did you, what happened? We find in John that, he was able to escape them. Because why? John tells us. Because his time had not yet come. It's over and over. You see it, especially in the Gospel of John. 
They, they, they tried to seize him. They tried to grab him. But they could not because his time had not yet come. He slipped away from their grasp. And then we find at the end of Jesus' life that when it was time for him to go on trial, that, that Jesus says, my hour has come. He realizes that, that now is the time. And so just as God protected Jesus from premature death throughout his life, he does it right here at the beginning of his life. He allows the Magi to, to find out from an angel in a dream the very words of God that they should, they should go back another way. So we don't know if they went down south and went down below the Dead Sea or if they just simply went around Jerusalem somehow. But the point is, is they avoided Jerusalem at all costs because certainly Herod would be interested to find out where he was. And uh, so the point of God's working according to his plan is simply to reflect upon God's person and his character. That he is true to what he said he will do. That he is powerful to sustain. But if he can't accomplish what, what he planned, if, if you know, a lot of times we think, well, God gave some supernatural providence. He, he did something extra special for Jesus. And sure, certainly he did uh, perform some miracles in order to protect Jesus. But in general, the protection that God provided for Jesus was no more special than the protection that we receive. We think, well, you know, God was going to accomplish his plan. He had a really special plan for Jesus, and so he protected Jesus. But he's not going to give me that extra special protection. He's not going to do that to me, is he? But if God can't accomplish his plan in Jesus or in us, then two things are true about God. Either, number one, he's untruthful, because he said that, uh, because he says that he has the power to do that, either he's untruthful or he is, and this is a brand new word, this is the first time you'll ever hear it, unomnipotent. He's not all-powerful. He's limited in his power. You see, when he gets to something that he can't handle, boom, he hits a wall. I can't, I can't help you anymore. Okay, I've helped you as far as I can. Now you've got to take yourself the rest of the way. God doesn't just protect Jesus in his lifetime. God has the same hand of protection on us. Now, we don't know when our time has come, but we do know that God has the power to work out his plan. And if he has a plan for you, you can be confident that, and he does, and you can be confident that he will work out that plan. Now, I want to show you, I want you to see from this study tonight, four applications that we can, that we can uh, take and apply to our lives. Number one, Jesus is the king of the Jews and should be worshipped as the king of all. He is the king of the Jews and he should be worshipped as king of all. Number two, Jesus must be worshipped by all the nations of the world. The Magi did not represent the Jewish people. They represented the rest of the world, you and me. People who, who had an opportunity to follow after Christ to, to, to worship him and they did it. I, I love the verse, the two verses in John chapter 1 verse 11 where it says that Jesus came unto his own and his own did not receive him. That is, he came to his own people, the Jews. He came to Nazareth. They didn't receive him. They rejected him. But then the next verse is the one that gives me great hope 
and great joy. Verse 12. Even though his own did not receive him, but as many as received him. It's open to all. To them gave he the power, the right, the authority to become the children of God. That's what kind of Savior we have. One that cares about more than just the Jewish people. He cares about all people. And so he must be worshipped as such. That is our responsibility. When we recognize the risen or the, or the, the uh, newborn king, when we think about the birth of Jesus Christ, we should respond in worship. The third thing I want you to see is that Jesus, the idea of him being king, is troubling It's troubling to people who do not want to worship him. Did you notice that in the story? There's two types of people that rejected Jesus. Okay, We have the chief priests and the scribes. How did they reject Jesus? They simply rejected him passively. They just didn't care. They had this apathetic mindset that, you know what? Yeah, the Messiah is coming. That's great. We'll wait for him to set up his kingdom, and then we'll start following him. Okay? Listen, this guy can't be it. They're passive. They don't care uh, whether or not the king of the Jews is being born. The second type of rejector that we see in this passage, and I think it's true in all of life, you have the passive rejectors, and then you have the active rejectors. This is personified in King Herod. Right? He, he recognizes what Jesus means to his throne. And his response, does he sit back on his throne and say, okay, that's, that's fine? No. He finds out a way in order to destroy him, to suppress his authority. And that's exactly what you'll find in people all around you. You'll find that people are suppressing God's truth, that they'll, they're respect, re, suppressing God as the authority in their life. They don't want to accept him. Some of them, some of these people around you are doing it passively. They're sitting back and they, you know what? I don't really care. Okay, God said this, but I don't care. And the others are saying, no, God will not be, he will not take the throne in my life. I will not allow him. I will do everything that I can to suppress him, to suppress his, his greatness, his power. They recognize that, that God has demands for them. And uh, that is the response that they have. So basically we have three types, if we use those as two types, the passive rejector and the active rejector, there's three types of responses to the newborn king. Passively reject him, actively reject him, or thirdly, the wise men do what? They accept him, they worship him. They worship him, and that should be our response. Look back to verse 10, because I want you to see the great joy that they had in, in finding the king. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, there are lots of ways that you could say that you have joy. You could say, they rejoiced. When they saw the star, they rejoiced. You could say, they rejoiced with joy. You could say, they rejoiced with great joy. But what does the text say? Text say it says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. There's no more prevalent way, more uh, profound way to say what what they're experiencing. They have this great joy that fills them, and so that is how they respond to the truth about Jesus. 
And the, the reason they do this is because of what they wanted to do. They wanted to worship him. That's what they came to do. They recognized that he is the authority. And so we find in verse 11 that they offer to him their gifts. It says they opened their treasures and they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now these are sacrificial on their part. They certainly didn't have to bring any gifts to Jesus. Um, I don't know how he could have used those. There are some people that suggest that, he, that his parents used that money to help them get to Egypt. Certainly they didn't have a lot of money on their own. Uh, and so they, they may have used that those resources, those um, kind of rare gifts, the gold and the frankincense and myrrh, to, to use to travel up to Egypt and back. But the, the Magi gave these sacro, sacrificial gifts... And when we think about it, we should think that Christ doesn't really need anything, does he? Acts chapter 17, verse 25 says that God is not served by human hands. God is not served by human hands. He's unlike the gods of this world. In fact, uh, you remember Dagon. You remember he, he fell down when the Ark of the Covenant was in his presence and they had to pick him back up. This was a God that was made by their own hands and then he had to be transported and moved and held back up by people. And then, of course, the next day he falls down again and breaks off uh, a couple appendages. And, and, uh, but that's not our God. Our God does not, is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Romans chapter 11, verse 35 says, Who has given to God in order that he might repay him? That is God. Who has given to God where God has ever said, thank you? Or God has said, oh, you know what? I need to pay you back some way. God cannot be, he cannot repay anybody because no one can give him enough worth, enough glory, enough sacrificial gifts for him to, to, uh, to need anything or to have to respond in repayment because 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, what do you have that you did not receive? I mean, what is it in our lives, whether it be material possessions or acts of service, what is it that we did not receive from God in the first place? All that we're giving to God is simply what He has already given to us. There's nothing more that we can do. But I would suggest that that is the best thing that we can do, is to give of ourselves. To give of ourselves as personal sacrifices Romans 12:1 because when we give the gift of personal sacrifice and self-denial to Christ it's a way of us saying like the wise men Christ I joyfully I with great exceeding joy follow after you I pursue you with all of my heart and my hope is not that that you will give me gifts back so that I can enjoy them some more when I follow you, God, I'm giving up these gifts that you've given to me so that you recognize that I'm not doing this for your gifts. I'm serving you. I'm giving my life and these gifts to you, not in order to get rich, but so that I can take greater joy in you yourself. That I can can be devoted more to you. And 
And our desire is intensified and it demonstrates the love that we have the more we give to Him. By giving what we, we do not, but we're giving to God, listen God, you don't need this. We certainly could use this, but we're giving it up because we want to say more clearly to you that you are our treasure. Not the gifts that you give to us, you, God. And so I'm willing to give these things up to you, whether it be my possessions, whether it be my time, whether it be my worries, whatever it is, I'm giving it to you, God. The, as the best means of uh, the best way in which I can worship you. And that is all we can do. There's nothing we can do in order that God can repay us. There's nothing we can do in order that God would ever say, thank you. Because he doesn't need anything. We need him. And we need to, to respond like the wise men did to him with genuine Worship, recognizing who he is and what he has done for us. What will your response be to Christ? What will your response be? Will you be indifferent? Like the teachers of the law, will you be apathetic? You know, that's great. God has all this truth for me. That's fine. Will you be an active rejecter of it, like Herod? Or will you fall down? And worship Him? Will you give of yourself to Him with a life of worship? Let's bow together for prayer. Lord, You are not only the King of the Jews. You are the King of all the earth. And You deserve to be worshipped with everything that we have. We, with great joy, joyfully cling to you as the only satisfaction for us and we lay down our gifts at your feet. We do this as a way of showing, showing to you that you mean more to us than all of the things that you give to us. And we long for the day when we can stand before you in glory, having received the crowns that you have so graciously given to us and being able to throw them down at your feet as the only means by which we can worship you. Help us, Lord, to give our lives as, as living sacrifice, living sacrifices only because we recognize the grace that you've given to us. We could never repay you for all the grace that you've given, but help us to do as much as we can out of a gratitude for what you've done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, our great Savior. Amen.